Happy summer, everyone, and welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts. I do, in most parts of my life, what I'm told to do, and I do that which Ross Ablo tells me to do for Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts. If you don't know who Ross Ablo is, he's the clicking sound occasionally or a ill-placed sneeze in Park Avenue Podcasts. Um, behind the scenes, but he really does far more than that in the synagogue and for the podcast and in charge of production. And according to the powers that be, in this case, Ross, um, we are going to um, broadcast. It's not a rebroadcast. It's actually an older broadcast of a very um, important conversation that I had in around January um, prior to the Shabbaton with Peter Geffen. Uh, and Peter Geffen, uh, in addition to all of his other claims to fame as the founder of the Abraham Joshua Heschel School, um, an Israel experience uh, called Kivunim, uh, he was actually once upon a time a youth director at Park Avenue Synagogue at the very beginning of his distinguished career. Look at that. The great things that happened by way of Park Avenue Synagogue. It was a long conversation. We're going to split it up into two parts. Um, the first part is about to be broadcast, and the second part will follow the following week. Uh, but Peter Geffen, one of the important voices um, of the Jewish people and beyond creating relationships and in interfaith across the globe, uh, and a defender of our people. Uh, just such an honor, such a pleasure to have this special broadcast of a dialogue I had with Peter Geffen um, on a range of subjects. Uh, thank you for joining Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and here is Peter. Peter Geffen, it's wonderful to welcome you back since your days of being a, a youth director here. Uh, just a short while ago. Um, Baruch haba. Thank you. You are a dear friend. Um, this is a great moment for our community, our annual Shabbaton. Um, the focus has been on Shabbat, community building, and as you just saw, specifically in the month of the yard site of um, Abraham Joshua Heschel, a focus on his legacy, which of the 8,000 things I could talk to you about, and we might get to a few of those right now, um, I want to begin with that. So um, you um, founded a school um, in his name, the Abraham Joshua Heschel School. Um, you know quite a bit, and we're going to talk about your relationship to Heschel's thought. Um, but I was wondering if you could share with me um, whether you see a line between all of the various aspects of Heschel's life from his early Hasidism, to his scholarship, to his books on the prophets, to his books on the Sabbath, to his political activism. Is there a thread, or are these different disparate chapters of one person's life? So before I answer that question, I just have to say that this is like an unbelievably emotional moment for me. Um, I came to work here at the Park Avenue Synagogue on what was, even before this building existed, in 1967. I was hired in the spring. I was in Israel as a civilian volunteer for the Six-Day War. I came back 
because Rabbi Joe Wernick, who some of you remember, wrote me a, sent me a telegram and said, you better get back here and don't stay there in Israel and you have obligations. And, and I was hired basically to try and uh, keep kids after their bar and bat mitzvah somehow involved in the synagogue. And I was here for 18 years. And um, so my start in Jewish education and really uh, uh, everything that I, whatever little bit I may know, really starts here. So to come back here uh, and also have many of my former students who look a little too old, to, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's really quite incredible. And um, uh, so I, I'm very honored and, and the timing is really quite something. So my answer to your question is that Heschel was organically a weaver. So there are no disparate elements. And I'll give you a, a really a, a sort of poignant example. When he was a boy, he tells a story that one day when he was 10 or 11 years old, he was in the yeshiva and he had, you know, his big Talmud in front of him. It's 11 by 17 on each side, so it's a big book. And inside the Talmud, he had a geography book. And, uh, and because he was the son of the Rebbe, the other kids were always jealous, and every time they had a chance to say something that he wasn't doing something right, they would do so. So the kids saw him reading this book, which was not the book he was supposed to be reading, and they said, Heschel, you're supposed to be reading Sifrei Kodesh, holy books. And his response was, I am reading Sifrei Kodesh. I am reading holy books. In other words, already as a child, Heschel understood that in that broad world outside the religious world, outside the yeshiva, that was also part of the religious world, part of God's world, and that integration was part of his thinking from the beginning. His social activism came when he came to America, but even that isn't true, because when you read what he wrote in response to the growing climate le leading to World War II, one of his most powerful essays is an extraordinary presentation in which he basically says that those of us who did not work at the altar of peace are now going to have to sacrifice at the altar of war. Those are not exactly his words, but that was the idea. So the activism was already there as a young man. And his sense of self was always an integrated sense of self, that the outside world and the inside world were part of the totality. We've bifurcated these worlds in many different ways, and we live that way. That conversation that you just had was really fascinating because it's hard for us to imagine an integration of the outside and the inside the way he did. But he really did live an integrated life, and he didn't see the distinctions. Um, and, and by the way, I, I would add, can I add something to that? <laughs> I, I, I would add, he was the person who bridged the relationship between the Jewish community and other religions. To this day, there are Catholic monasteries around the world, not just in the United States, who have a weekly meditation on teachings of Heschel. And his closest relationship during the years that he was at the seminary were not with other professors at the seminary for reasons which will be another essay, another session you can give without me. But his closest relationship was with Reinhold Niebuhr, who was the head of the Union Theological Seminary across the street. They were really intimately close friends. And 
very often on Shabbat afternoon, they would walk together on Riverside Drive. Niebuhr was a tall, lanky guy. Heschel was a short, stumpy guy, as you said. And many people would say that they looked like Mutt and Jeff, if you're old enough to remember who they were. Um, and they would just talk theology, religion. But the relationship was deep, authentic, and powerful. And the same, we'll talk about it a little bit later, the same developed in the Catholic Church. And in fact, in those years of the 60s, when we would, as students, sit on the steps outside the seminary on a nice day, and uh, a group, for example, as was common at the time of Hare Krishna, would come walking up to the steps, you knew exactly where they were going. Fifth floor, you know, room X. I don't remember the room number. But it was Heschel who entertained the presence of other religious communities within the Jewish community at a time when that was not simply a commonplace. And I guess the last comment in this category would be that when Heschel was 65 and the Rabbinical Assembly of America, really through its leadership, understood that he was, he was not ill yet, but he, was, he had a heart attack in 1969 when he was already 62, there was a fear that he wasn't going to live out much more of a life. So they began to do things to recognize that. They made two recordings on NBC TV and ABC TV, and they decided to have a birthday party. And then, of course, it was the spring of 1967 and the conditions in the Middle East and ultimately the war. So when he was 66, they had his 65th birthday party. And when they had originally come to him and asked him, who would you like to have be the speaker at this event? thinking that he would name some prominent rabbi from some place, one place or the other, etc. He said, I want Martin Luther King to be the speaker and I want to introduce him. And when he introduced him, he introduced him with the following words. He said, Martin Luther King is a voice, a vision, and a way. Martin Luther King is a sign that God has not forsaken the United States of America. I call upon every Jew to follow in his path, to heed his word, the whole future of America will depend upon Martin Luther King. And he was reciting this, you know, not even to a general audience. This was just to an audience of rabbis. By the way, that, of course, means at that time, all men. There were some who were gay, but nobody knew it. And there were a lot of Rabbitsons. And I was in that audience as a young person. It was really e extraordinary. But the point is that he meant every word of that. Those universes were to him as one. So that's, I think, really... I think it's a, a progress through his life that ends up with a unity and every word that came out of his mouth, the things that he wrote, the way he thought reflected that kind of a unification. Because it, it could have been enough for him just to devote his attention to the Jewish people, right? He was, uh, a I mean, he lost his family in the Holocaust. He himself narrowly escaped. Um, he, he was, no one could touch him as far as his intellect, his poetry, his theology and otherwise, but there was a moment, clearly because of his engagement with Vietnam, with civil rights, with the Vatican, with um, a, a, a number of causes, that he leveraged that, his own experience, into empathy for the condition of others, right? He didn't stay parochial. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that about that he didn't see it as an either or, but as a both and. So when Heschel came to the United States, he was a European Jew. 
he did not really speak English very well. He'd had spent some time in England, so he learned English, but he always spoke with an accented English, and he was, I wouldn't say he was uncomfortable with it, but I'll tell you where he felt that he was the wrong person for something because of his accent. And he was hesitant to dive in. And America in the early 50s, let's also remember, was a place where it was a little dangerous, particularly for people with accents to be talking on political matters. So he existed in a quietude that lasted for several years. But he writes himself that when the civil rights movement began, he was sitting up there in a classical ivory tower. And he looked out one day and he said to himself, and he, he writes it, I, I, I cannot any longer remain where I am. I, I have to be engaged in the, in the issues that face this country because these are the issues that face the world. And he understood what was at stake. And there I would say it ties in both to what your last comment was and something that you referred to also in, in, your, in your teaching in your class. He is, uh, it's not just the Holocaust. We need to remember whatever we may have, what, whatever America may have thought as the justification for the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Heschel, as a young man, had witnessed in two dramatic events across the world the capacity of modernity to completely obliterate all of life. So it must have been both terrifying and unbelievably motivating to him. And so I, I think that, you know, he, he felt that he had to get out there. And once he made that decision, you know, and, and, and let me add one other thing. It may also be fair to say that some of his students, for example, the late Rabbi Mark Tannenbaum, urged him to depart from just being a teacher and become uh, a social activist and a leader in the community. So it wasn't, either it was reinforced from the outside or some of it was even stimulated from outside, but he was extraordinarily responsive. Right. Right. The deciding which thread I want to pull right well, I'll, now. I'll help you. Okay. All right. Um, I want to read to you something which is, well, he read to you, you know. So, so this is, the reason I want to read this is uh, two or threefold. First of all, Heschel wrote in English all these books other than Heavenly Torah, Torah Menashemayim, all his books were written in English. It was at least his fifth or sixth language. And if you think about it, it's not only his use of language, but his turning of a phrase that is extraordinarily unique. Uh, all of us who grew up speaking and learning English, very rarely can we speak the way he did. Most of his work was created in the following way. He would sit at his desk, he would have a thought, he'd write it on a legal pad, he'd rip it off the legal pad, put it on a pile, and when the pile got to be about this high, he would give it to his secretary to type it up. That's why some other Jewish philosophers, current and unnamed, say that Heschel is an unsystematic thinker because his books often do not flow from one thought or one paragraph to the other. In my personal opinion, it doesn't matter. Each one of them is really extraordinary. But after he died, Susanna was going through his desk and she found several files with documents that he had written but never published. And this is one of them. 
and it's called On Descent, or we call it On Descent. It didn't have a name. And by the way, I'll be happy to leave it, and you could look at it, or if somebody sends me an email, I'll be happy to send you a copy. He corrects in the margins and on the page in the English what he himself had written in order to edit it. In other words, I try and edit my own work. I have a really rough time. This is like unbelievable. By the way, on that talk that you gave on Heschel a few weeks ago, you made some changes from the written text because I was watching and looking. See? So <laughs> here's what he says, because it's related to what we were talking about. Inherent to all traditional religion is the peril of stagnation. What becomes settled and established may easily turn foul. Insight is replaced by cliches, elasticity by obstinacy, spontaneity by habit, acts of dissent prove to be acts of renewal. It is therefore of vital importance for religious people to voice and appreciate dissent. And dissent implies self-examination, critique, discontent. Dissent is indigenous to Judaism. The prophets of ancient Israel who rebelled against their religion that would merely serve the self-interest or survival of the people continue to stand out as inspiration and example of dissent to this very day. An outstanding feature dominating all Jewish books composed during the first 500 years of our era is the fact that together with the normative view, a dissenting view is nearly always offered, whether in theology or in law. Dissent continued during the finest periods of Jewish history. Great scholars sharply disagreed with Maimonides. Hasidism that brought so much illumination and inspiration into Jewish life was a movement, a movement of dissent. In the past centuries, even under conditions of repression and of danger to their very existence, Jews continued to persist in their descent from both Judaism and Christianity, thus retaining a spiritual loyalty unmatched in the history of humanity. Judaism in its very essence came into being as an act of dissent, of dissent from paganism, as an act of nonconformity with the surrounding culture and unless we continue to dissent, unless we continue to say no to idol worship in the name of a higher yes, we will revert to paganism. The greatness of the prophets was in their ability to voice dissent and disagreements not only with the beliefs of their pagan neighbors, but also with the cherished values and habits of their own people. Is there dissent in Judaism today? Creative dissent is not simply repudiation or demure. Creative dissent comes out of love and faith, offering positive alternatives, a vision. The scarcity of creative dissent today may, may be explained by the absence of assets that make creative dissent possible. Deep caring, concern, untrammeled radical thinking informed by rich learning, a degree of audacity and courage, and the power of the word. The dearth of people who are both rooted in Jewish learning and who think clearly and care deeply, who are endowed with both courage and power of the word, may account for the spiritual vacuum for the state of religious existence today. Not talking about Park Avenue Synagogue. <laughs> Judaism, whose stance is audacity, is presented as a religion of complacency. Judaism is a call to grandeur, but what we hear is a system of trivialities, commonplace, cliches, so much of what is given out as Jewish thinking 
is obsolete liberalism or narrow parochialism. The education offered in most schools is insipid, flat, and trivial. There are dissenters at Judaism today, yet those who attract the most attention are frivolous, while those who are authentic speak in a small, still voice which the establishment is unable to hear. First of all, extraordinary. Extraordinary right. that what we just heard is unpublished. Um, so I look forward to stealing that. Um, <laughs> the, but I think the key element here, my read of Heschel, that this is, is the prophets, meaning, of course, you know, back to this week's Parsha, which is remember that the identify with the heart of the stranger, for you were once a stranger in a strange land. But it's really in the prophetic tradition uh, when, um, you know, at great risk to themselves, um, the prophets of the classical prophets of the Bible raged against the establishment. Um, and called out the injustices, whether it was on matters of observance, whether it was the treatment of the widow and the poor, um, uh, whatever the injustices were in society. And Heschel had actually written his doctoral thesis on this prior to coming to America. Um, and he, whether that was actually in his blood or whether that was only given expression by way of, you know, uh, Tannenbaum pulling him into it or... Um, or, or his relationship with King, or otherwise, but he—he—you can hear it in what you just said, Peter. That that this calling of um, this rage against complacency, the famous passage that some are guilty, but all are responsible. That indifference is not an option. Um, that's that's baked into the prophetic voice, um, and now all the activism of his life would ultimately take shape. Um, so, so how, I mean, tell us about these years, because if 50s, if the 1950s were the years that he was somewhat um, still, you know, in the ivory tower of the seminary, but in the 60s, and obviously this was a time of great um, uh, uh, social upheaval in our country, um, that was a moment, and I don't know the nature of, of your relationship, I know that um, you were, um, you, maybe you could share the story of, of your contact with Heschel, um, but his sort of coming out into the public stage. So I, I, in, in starting to answer that question, I think we, we all sort of have to think about, he, here's this boy, his father, it's not just that he was, it was enough that he was a Hasidic Rebbe, but the great-grandfather that Rabbi Kozlov described before, he's buried next to the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. The Ohev Yisrael, the lover of Israel, as he was known, is not a passing figure in the Hasidic world. So Heschel's in this cocoon. But the uniqueness of this human being, why he is not just another of these forces, is that in the midst of that completely protected world, he developed this alternative way of seeing life and seeing Jewish life that was not only not characteristic of the Eastern European religious communities, it wasn't characteristic of Judaism almost anywhere. We had little pieces here and there, uh, you know, across the world, but this was uh, a unique human being. And as I said before, when he, when he saw the growth of the civil rights movement in particular, 
he simply decided that he could no longer stand aside. And he began, again, he began reluctantly. You referred to this in your talk a few weeks ago. He spoke at the national, first national conference on religion and race in Chicago in January of 1963. Mark Tannenbaum was the one right. who insisted that is, he go. Is George at here? Let's see right now. No, George. His, so, uh, so Mark encouraged him, and Heschel said, I'm not an American Jew. I speak with an accent. It shouldn't be me. And, and Mark said, you are the only person who should represent us. And this was an enormous gathering, thousands of ministers and priests and some rabbis. By the way, in 1963, religion in America was just Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. There were other religions, but they were invisible. So Heschel gets up to speak, and he says what you quoted in that talk. Can I repeat that quote? He says, because some of you didn't, weren't there, or... Sometimes or, or people don't listen to exactly, the podcast. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Or, or, you know, um, he said when he got up to speak, this was the first national conference on religion and race. So Heschel says, at the first national conference on religion and race, the main participants were Moses and Pharaoh. Moses said, let my people go that they may serve their God. And Pharaoh said, I will not let your people go. And then Heschel continued and he said, that summit meeting was not has not yet been concluded. Today, speaking of 1963, on college campuses across the south of the United States, it is more difficult for a Negro student to cross that college campus than it was for the children of Israel to cross the Red Sea. Sitting not further than you are from us was Martin Luther King, and they had never met. And from that moment, for the five years that remained in King's life, they became deep personal friends. And that transformed both of them, in a really powerful way. And in fact, when King was assassinated, he was on his way to New York to attend a Heschel family Seder because King saw himself and often spoke in the language of the book of Exodus, the book of Shemot that we're reading, and was seen in the black community as a Moses figure, not as a Jesus figure, by the way, it's interesting. And he saw himself in that way too. And Heschel said to him a few weeks before, you know, the Passover Seder is all about you. So join us. And he was killed on April 4th, and Pesach began that year on April 16th. He would have been here in, in New York at the family Seder. And that was part one of two parts of a conversation with Peter Geffen. And we're going to drop the next conversation next week. Uh, and you can continue learning and listening to Peter Geffen and to all things Park Avenue Synagogue podcasts. Hallelujah, Hallelujah.